have friends that are beginning to become young adults and they want to go out to the club and the only club in your area has one step in order to get into it and you're in a power wheelchair, that sort of doesn't go well together. I found video games to be that outlet where I could take my Super Nintendo into my friend's garage and we could hang out for hours. We'd be playing our Street Fighters or Streets of Rage and that kind of fighting games with my pals that were super into beating each other's butts. That butt-beating virtual Street Fighter is Steven Spawn, COO of the nonprofit Able Gamers. I found the deeper I delved into the world of gaming, the more I felt like I was just like everyone else. We're all the same. We're all just gamers. Steve got into competitive gaming, which requires quick reflexes and precision timing in order to win. But he was facing a far greater challenge. So my disability is spinal muscular atrophy, which essentially means that over time, my muscles get weaker and weaker. What happens is I lose abilities as we go along. At the same time that Steve's muscles were weakening, video game controls were getting more complex. But Steve was determined to game on. My hands started getting weaker, and I had to find a way to continue to do what I was doing without being able to do the same physical movements. And I am a technology guy, so I knew there had to be technology out there somewhere that could bridge this gap between my abilities and my desire. During his research, Steve turned to Able Gamers. At the time, it was a blog aimed at helping disabled gamers continue to play. There was an article that the founder, Mark Barlet, had put up about you can't play World of Warcraft with only one arm. And I knew that that was baloney. So being the adolescent 20-year-old that I was, I was like, ha Mark, you're wrong. This is why I'm right, and you suck. And instead of turning me away like the, the snot-nosed little kid that I was, he was like, oh, yeah, you think you can write better? Write better. And I'm like, oh, yeah, well, I will. I'm going to do better than you. Despite that adversarial beginning, Steve and Mark soon hit it off. Mark and I got to work, and we created a guide for developers to be able to make their games as accessible as possible. Many of these measures were simple tweaks that would have huge impacts for millions of disabled gamers. But the biggest stumbling block was the classic game controller. Picture it. Small buttons clustered close together. Teeny twin joysticks positioned to fit under each thumb. It's a design aimed at amplifying the smallest of movements into on-screen glory. But for disabled players, it can be a frustrating, alienating obstacle. Not everyone's abilities include being able to grab a standard controller with both hands in order to play. One day, a giant of the gaming world came calling. Microsoft. So Able Gamers got to work in secrecy with Xbox for over three and a half years. They basically said, you need to see the super cool thing that we're doing, and we think you have some amazing advice for us. We went, yeah, cool, this sounds awesome. That super cool thing was called the Xbox Adaptive Controller. It was quite literally a game changer for disabled players. 
these kinds of adaptive controllers allow you to capitalize on your abilities. Maybe you have only one arm, or maybe you don't have the ability to rapid fire push your pointer finger. Our assistive technologies can take those controllers and change where the buttons are. We can take technology, we can change them just a little bit, and we can make them better for everyone. The adaptive controller is just one example of how small but thoughtful tweaks can change everything. I believe the smallest feature can make or break your product. You've got to have incredible talent at every position. It's like this huge push. There are fires burning when you're going home. Can you believe it? Such an idiot. And then you go back to, this is totally going to be amazing. There are so many easy ways. I'm supposed to know what to do. I have no idea what to do. Sorry, we made a mistake. But you have to time it right. Oops. Working out of a three-bedroom apartment. Stuff that just seems absolutely nutballs. Ten years later, I'm like, well, that's just how you do it. We haven't made just how you do it. This is Masters of Scale. We'll start the show in a moment after a word from our premier brand partner, Capital One Business. I woke up in the middle of the night because I had this nightmare that we were front page news, that we've done the stupidest mistake of our life by making this pivot. <laughs> That's Aparna Saran, Chief Marketing Officer for Capital One Business, and she's recalling a moment from her previous position at Capital One when she was heading up a team designing a new business card. We had just made the decision to go all in and sunset the prior version of the product, which was honestly the cash cow for our business. When we made that decision within a senior leadership meeting, as someone who had been on the journey to build this out for five plus years, it was really exciting. But by the time the weekend hit, I started to feel the responsibility and the pressure. We are taking this big bet on something that I've built. Perhaps you've been there. You've made a pivotal decision and then panic sets in. How would Aparna calm her butterflies and steer her team through this pivot? We'll find out later in the show. It's all part of the Refocus Playbook, a special series where Capital One Business highlights stories of business owners and leaders using one of Reed's theories of entrepreneurship. Today's Playbook Insight, have multiple plan Bs. I'm Reid Hoffman, founder of LinkedIn, partner at Greylock, and your host. And I believe the smallest feature can make or break your product. The challenge is recognizing the impact of that feature and making sure it's actually positive. As a founder or a product manager, you should always be on the lookout for small changes that can have an outsized impact. While small changes typically lead to incremental improvements, every so often, the impact is exponential. I wanted to talk to Whitney Wolf Heard about this because both of the products she's launched are known for a single distinguishing feature that set them on the course for massive growth. She was a co-founder of the dating app Tinder, famous for letting users swipe right on potential matches. After leaving Tinder, she founded another dating app, Bumble, which has grown to 50 million users and $200 million in revenue. Bumble's success also lies in the seemingly small tweak Whitney made to the established dating app format. 
Like Tinder, users swipe through profiles of potential matches. If they like what they see, they swipe right. If not, they swipe left. If two users swipe right on each other's profiles, they can message each other. But here's the key difference. On Bumble, women have to make the first move. This tweak doesn't just change how dating apps work. It aims to change how dating works, period. It rewrites our cultural assumptions about how people connect. And connecting with people, understanding what makes them tick, has always been Whitney's drive. I remember telling my father right before I went to college, I want to go into advertising. I want to go into marketing. I want to connect with people. And I remember my dad saying, I don't know if that's advertising and marketing that you're saying that you're passionate about. I think you're passionate about something else. As it turned out, her father was right. So I show up at university and I try to apply to the advertising department. Well, I flunked the exam, bombed it. I did not get accepted. And it was shocking to me because every question on that exam lacked empathy and emotion. There was no human connectivity involved. It was all about eyeballs on the commercial that you played. It was clear from the cold, hard numbers staring out from that exam paper that Whitney wasn't cut out for that type of marketing. She wanted something with more heart and soul. I ended up going into humanities and studying global studies. So the classes I took were globalization. What's the impact of putting a smiling Ronald McDonald versus a frowning Ronald McDonald in different countries? It changes the game. It's all about humans and emotions and connecting with the individual, wherever that individual is. It's hyperlocality, and that's marketing. Whitney is remembering here a famous corporate case study. It turns out that certain cultures mistrusted the broad smile of Ronald McDonald. When Ronald offered a more subdued expression, customers poured in. This learning from McDonald's of all places stuck with Whitney. And there's a lesson in it for all of us. If you recognize both the universals of human nature and the hyper-local nature of human culture, you can literally turn a frown upside down from millions of potential customers. Whitney brought this ability to read a room and the market with her to Tinder. It was 2012, and Whitney was visiting college campuses to promote the app. Strangers connecting was not something that that group of people, millennials, if you will, wanted to touch. I was really taking it and convincing my peers that it was great to connect with people you didn't have access to. Whitney visited dorm rooms and student unions, convincing people to give the app a try. Her persistence and persuasion pulled them in. But what kept them using it was Tinder's secret weapon, the swipe. And it's fascinating to see that you can take a virtually similar product because let's be real with each other. Tinder was not the invention of dating apps. They've been on the market for a very long time. And not just one or two. I mean, there's a full app store of them. Okay, the famous Tinder swipe, that wasn't actually in the very first versions of Tinder. But the novel mechanism that required users to both like each other was there. People tapped a green heart for yes and a red X for no. It was this tweak to the dating experience that set Tinder apart from the other dating apps that filled the app store. And this small tweak soon had people swooning for it. Nowadays, you can swipe for just about anything. 
shoes, apartments, tweets, dinner options, baby names, when you want to adopt a pet or even a child. The swipe has become as much a part of our shared user interface as the double click or the desktop trash can. The swipe made Tinder hugely popular. Within two years of launching, it was processing a billion swipes per day. But the swipe also contributed to a darker side of the Tinder experience. It was a side Whitney and her Tinder co-founders had not foreseen. We had this product, and we were getting all of these people to basically get on it and then go free, match with each other, talk to one another. You're on it now, do as you want. But no one had really been able to imagine just what could come. I don't think at that time we were thinking, well, people are going to get married and have babies, or this is going to end in a really dangerous state. Small changes to a service can amplify behavior for good or bad. And it's hard to rein in once this change has caught imaginations and become part of what your users love about your product. Although these small tweaks can be the key to hitting massive scale, they can also have unintended consequences. People loved the new approach to finding matches. Like a pompous monarch, a simple flick of your finger could decide the fate of a person. You could select someone as a potential suitor or banish them from your life forever. Many of those matches were based on nothing more than a profile picture and a brief self-introduction. There were worries that the casual flicking through hundreds of profiles was desensitizing. It encouraged people to dismiss other human beings in milliseconds. At worst, it encouraged people to be shallow and insensitive, predatory and vain. And this affected how people viewed each other and how they interacted. Tinder soon became a byword for meaningless hookups. The platform was also rife with reports of misogyny and harassment. No one was thinking of the consequences. And I think what I learned from my time at Tinder was the minute you encourage someone to use a piece of technology, you are inherently responsible. And so I think that always lingered with me as I was there and then as I left. What are the consequences of this technology? And I think what we've seen with this explosion of tech dating or tech meetups is there is a dark side to it. Whitney got firsthand experience of this dark side when she left Tinder following an acrimonious departure. After leaving, she filed a sexual harassment lawsuit against the company. As part of the settlement, Whitney is very restricted in what she can say about that time. But she can talk about the aftermath and the very public attacks she was subjected to. I became under attack by strangers. And so I was on the other end of what it might feel like to be exposed on the internet to people. When I was being bullied online, I just couldn't understand why this was the place that young girls and women were meant to be all day long. And I think that was really what started to shape the next thing for me. It was a dark time for Whitney, but it also helped shape her resolve to try to make a change to how people talk to each other online. 
I really started thinking, how can I approach this from a unique perspective and take my experience that I've had in building a brand, building a user base, and then my understanding of data and technology at this point, how can I really rethink social media in the context of kindness? And I understood that just like bad behavior can become addictive and viral, good behavior can also be contagious and kindness can also be contagious. This is proven psychological theory. Note how Whitney wasn't simply throwing up her hands and saying the technology itself was the problem. Rather, the optimistic product creator in her believed there were good aspects to social networking. We just needed to tweak the technology in such a way it amplified the good while mitigating the toxic. But you could claim that altering the entire way discourse on social media was conducted was a lofty, and perhaps foolish, goal, even if well-intentioned. However, lofty goals do not necessarily fail because they are too ambitious. Rather, they can sometimes fall apart because the methods to make them happen are too forceful. Imagine the options for saving the Earth from an imminent asteroid impact. The most forceful and spectacular would be to launch a barrage of nuclear warheads and blow it out of the sky. However, while that might solve the problem, the resulting debris cloud could create a whole bunch of new things to worry about. Goodbye satellite network, telecoms, and GPS systems. Hello, radioactive rocks raining down upon us. A safer approach would be to detonate a carefully calculated amount of explosive. Do this close enough to the asteroid, and we could tweak its orbital path, nudging it off its collision course with our planet, and avoid blowing that asteroid to smithereens. Similarly, Whitney didn't want to explode the norms of online behavior. She wanted to nudge them in the right direction. Her idea was a social network named Merci, that had one small but impactful difference to all the other social networks that had gone before. The caveat was you couldn't just leave a random comment. No comments, only compliments. Mm. And this was in an effort to engineer and to create contagious digital behavior. Note how Whitney pictures the cascade effect that this small tweak could have. Instead of just a simple like, it would be a like attached to a compliment. And those compliments were going to be very much focused on non-physical compliments. So instead of saying somebody looks thin or somebody looks beautiful, it's going to be, you know, you light up my day. Or when you walk into a room, people feel happy. It was going to be compliments that were very much focused on the antithesis of what society has really focused on, which is beauty and weight and a lot of these more superficial accolades, which I was trying to get away from. Whitney was caught up in this idea. She was certain that making the right tweaks to the standard blueprint for social media could change things for the better. She was also certain of one other thing. I never wanted to hear the word dating again. Mm -hmm. When something out of the blue happened and the dating world came knocking on my door, it was my now business partner who's been instrumental in Bumble. He is a pioneer of the dating mm -hmm. space, just not so much domestically, very much overseas. That partner is Andrei Andreev, founder of the dating network Badu. 
he was excited at the prospect of applying the Merci model to online dating. But at first, Whitney wasn't interested. I said, no, Andre, I don't think you understand. It's not going to happen. We basically spent days and days negotiating over how could I change the internet for women and girls? Mm. And how could he be happy by working with me? Andre and I got fortunate to run into each other because had I sat in a room with any other entrepreneur, particularly any other male entrepreneur, I just don't know if they would have seen what I was trying to say. And he understood so clearly because he'd been dealing with data and insights of user behavior for a decade. And he knew firsthand that if you can't get women, you really have a lopsided experience. And so as he heard me really speaking passionately about this concept of making a safe digital ecosystem for girls and women, I think he had his own aha moment, which was, wait a second, this doesn't mean we need to go our own ways and we can't work together. If I can convince her to do a dating app, maybe she can find a way to build this mission into dating. Whitney found herself back in the dating app game. It was the last place she had expected or wanted to be after Tinder. She just had to hit on the feature that would set Bumble apart. Discovering this small tweak would reignite Whitney's passion for an industry that had burnt her out. And it just might change the entire way online dating worked. We'll hear all about Whitney's journey back into the dating app world right after the break. We'll be back in a moment after a word from our premier brand partner, Capital One Business. There was panic that set in that night because I didn't want to let people down. We're back with Aparna Saran of Capital One Business. She was recalling the time she woke up in a cold sweat, terrified that the new product she had been working on might fail. So the next morning, she sat down and wrote an email. It was Sunday morning, and I said, you know what? I'm going to just like share this with my peers. It was very emotional. It was like sort of a cry for help. Aparna realized that if the new product didn't take off, she needed a plan B, preferably multiple plan Bs. I'm inviting them to be the thought partners so that we are mitigating as much risk as possible and we have contingency plans in place as we make this move. You write something like this and your heart is pounding, should I send this? It was a super vulnerable moment for me. But then I was like, I'm going to just send this. Like, what's the worst that will happen? It can't be worse than being on the front page of the newspaper. So she held her breath and hit send. What happened next would surprise even her. We'll hear about that later in the show. It's all part of Capital One Business's Spotlight on Business Leaders, following Reed's Refocus Playbook. Before the break, Whitney took the unexpected leap back into the world of online dating apps with her new business partner, Andrei Andreev. And they were determined to find a way to break from the rampant toxicity that was becoming the norm. We were sitting around and kind of banging our heads against a wall and saying, okay, what's this going to do? What's this going to do? And I was sitting there and I said, all right, I need to understand dating. What's broken in dating? What's broken in dating? And all of a sudden, I just had this somewhat hurricane moment in my mind. And I said to him, 
okay, I think I've got it. What if we take the standard dating platform, but there is a catch? Once the match takes place, only the woman can initiate conversation. So this is basically like a woman and a man locking eyes at a bar, but he has no way to contact her, and she understands that he's interested because that match or that lock eye has taken place, but it's on her. The only way to have contact is that she has to unlock it. So I said, women must make the first move. This is going to reduce harassment. This is going to reduce bad behavior. Women are not going to be spammed. And women will be empowered and encouraged to actually be in the driver's seat. The more Whitney thought about it, the more she saw the potential to rewrite the rules of not just dating, but social interaction. It was another small tweak that could have a massive effect. We essentially made very subtle design changes in the sense that the user flow was very familiar, right? We weren't trying to reinvent the wheel. We were just trying to reverse it. And so everyone was familiar and comfortable with the experience, yet there was that caveat of once that match was made, the woman had to speak first, which was so contradictory to what the expectation had been the past hundreds of years of dating and then, of course, the past few years of digital dating. And so it truly was such a small product change, but with such an interesting social impact. But even such a simple concept explained in such a simple way was hard for people to grasp. We have to really reshape behavior because women are taught not to make the first move. Women are taught not to speak first. They're taught never to send that first message, never to initiate. And men are taught to be very aggressive and really beat down that wall until she says, yes, that's Disney. That's everything. And um, the beast. Exactly. Cinderella, the carriage you know is going to turn into a pumpkin at midnight. And I said those words. I said, you have 24 hours to make the first move. Otherwise, your carriage turns into a pumpkin. And we have to take such a simplified notion of these gender dynamics, quite literally down to Cinderella. Trying to convince people to do things your way is a problem familiar to anyone introducing a new product or a new way of doing things, especially as people might not even consciously know what it is they want. This is something Marissa Meyer came up against in the early days of working on Google search. We did a test where we did 10, 20, 25, and 30. Because at the time, Yahoo was serving 20 results per page. And some people were serving as many as 30 results per page. And we wanted to see what the optimal number of results per page was. When Marissa and her team asked users how many results they wanted per page, there was a clear preference. I'd ask people in some of our early user studies, how many results would you want? They'd be like, 20, great. 25, even better. 30, best of all. However... When Google tried serving different numbers of results per page, they found quite a different answer. The answer was 10. It was fascinating, actually, because one of the key measurements was how many searches per user would be done, how many pages deep would they go, how many times they have to revise, things like that. So we looked at, like, first page search results requested per user, and... Basically, it fell off dramatically between 10 and 20. 25 was even worse. 30 was worst of all. The results were really dramatic. It turned out that the perceived benefit of having more results per page was offset by a different factor, one that was barely perceptible yet extremely important to users, even if 
they didn't realize it consciously. The thing that popped was it actually took Google longer to prepare more results. And so one of the things I've always talked about is that latency and time matters a lot more to people than they yes. can usually articulate. Yes. Part of it was that people just didn't want to wait that extra split second. And one of the big advantages of Google is it just was that fast, but waiting longer for more results was just something people generally didn't want to do, especially given that the first 10 results were generally good enough. Google didn't need to convince their users that fewer results were better. They could just serve up the optimum number, 10, safe in the knowledge that this is what people preferred, despite what they might say. However, Whitney faced the challenge of trying to change the way people interact. This is especially difficult when it's something as personal as dating. A lot of women that first heard the idea, why am I going to text for, I'm not, what do you mean? Why would you ever do that? That doesn't make sense. Building the new system was the trivial part. The really important thing was working out how to make these new and unfamiliar ways of behaving become second nature and make the users delight in the new approach. So how did you start building that new norm? Well, that was really hard. Yes, I so, suspect. <laughs> that was really tricky, uh, especially you have to understand where I was at that time. Whitney was still dealing with the radioactive fallout surrounding her Tinder departure. Getting people to follow you down an unfamiliar path is tough, even when you're not a pariah. I had a scarlet letter on me. No one wanted to talk to me. Nobody wanted to work with me. And nobody wanted to download anything I was telling them to download. It was a trying time, and there was not a lot of supporters. And that's why that early team that I gathered, you know, they're still with us today. And we had to push really, really hard. So what was the, was it persistence? Was it techniques to surprise and delight? Was it addictive kindness? What were the set of things to start moving that norm? So back to the smiling Ronald McDonald or the frowning Ronald McDonald, it was all about the way you position this. So you could say to a group of guys, hey, download this platform you have to behave. If you are disrespectful, you're going to have consequences. And women are the bosses. They're in control. And you have no power. They might run for the hills in 2014. Or you could say, hey, guys, aren't you tired of constantly being the one that has to reach out and just getting rejected time and time again? I mean, that has to be hard for you, right? That must be tiring to constantly have to put yourself out there and get turned down nine out of 10 times. Well, there's this new product where when you mutually like somebody, they come to you. By reframing the Bumble approach as being positive for everyone, Whitney hoped everyone would embrace it. It is refreshing because it alleviates the rejection from men, but it does something really special on the other side. The whole notion of Bumble is really to recalibrate these norms, right? You think about pre-Bumble connecting online, or even connecting in general. The man starts with the power. The woman is meant to be, you know, damsel in distress. And so that creates this imbalance. It sets up a very dangerous, toxic framework. The whole effort is to take some of that pressure and that aggressive nature away from the man and to infuse confidence respect, empowerment, equality, accountability, and this lifts the woman up, and it really balances it out. The internet 
can be seen as a distorting mirror that emphasizes and compounds the uglier aspects of human interaction. However, it can also be a prism that refracts new ways of relating to each other back out into society. So where you think about whether it's catcalling on the street or on a digital platform, men constantly trying to get someone's attention and being rejected at all times, this fuels aggression. This fuels abusive behavior. This creates toxic behavior. And I'm not saying bad behavior cannot happen on Bumble. Trust me, you know, we know everyone that has scaled a business to any extent, even to a thousand users. You can never control humans, but what you can do is try to point them in the right direction. Unfortunately, we can't make a Bumble-like rule for interaction in real life. Putting an end to the cycle of abusive behavior will take more than a few nudges, a few tweaks, a few new features, and it will need years to take effect. And this is part of the huge power of technology. We can build interaction on the terms we choose. We can also experiment with the rules of engagement. And in doing so, maybe the norms we adopt will eventually filter out into wider society. But there is always the danger of unexpected consequences, even in the controlled interactions like those on Bumble. Initially, Bumble gave women 24 hours to send the initial message to men they had matched with. If they didn't, then the chance was gone. However, men could take as long as they wanted to respond. They might take a day. They might take a week. And so here we launched this product, and, you know, we have the best intentions in mind, genuinely. Like, we really have a northern star of how do we end misogynistic behavior in relationships? Okay, well, let's start by empowering women, but not in an effort to destabilize men, but to invite them in. Well, what we realized was by giving women this time restraint, but letting men respond at their own free will, this was actually going backwards. And this was not doing anyone any favors. And so we needed to hold both parties accountable. Bumble added in a requirement for men to respond within 24 hours or lose the chance. It was another example of how even a small tweak made with the best intentions can have an unforeseen negative impact. How do you avoid making these mistakes? Or when you make them, how do you course correct as rapidly as possible? For Whitney, the answer is through keen observation and a deep understanding of your users. The users are what give us every move we make, except for the very first move, right? It started somewhere, but then they took it and they drove it. And so women came to us and they're like, hey, listen, we get why you're giving us a 24-hour time restraint. We like it because it kind of makes us move. But I don't think it's fair that he doesn't have to respond to me. We heard it once, totally recognized it, heard it twice. It was in development. We moved fast. And we personally apologized and thanked them. Thanks for helping us tweak this. This is an approach the Bumble team has brought to Chappie, its dating product for gay men, which launched in 2016. When you think about gay dating apps, they've actually been incredibly non-inclusive to gay men. It's been very much engineered towards anonymity and very hypersexualized behavior. But there's never really been a product that actually facilitates dating, love, true relationships. Why would we offer that to the straight community 
And why are gay men alienated from that makes no sense. And so the true goal of Chappie is to be an inclusive platform that allows men to be more than just a casual fling. How does Chappie aim to achieve this? Another ingenious tweak, of course. The beauty of the new Chappie is that we have this sliding mode that allows men to really get what they're looking for, whether that's something casual, with no commitment, or if that's something more serious in the romantic perspective, or in fact, they might be looking for friendship, in which we give you a dedicated mode for that. So it's really the first app geared towards the gay community that allows gay men to really go after whatever connection they're seeking, not one that they feel has been imposed on them by the product. Chappie features a subtle yet highly impactful change that users loved. In the same way that an original tweak set Bumble apart from the dating app pack, transforming the norms of online dating for the better. And for Whitney, dating is just the start. She's expanding the Bumble effect into other unexpected realms. The Bumble rule of interaction that only women could initiate contact appealed not just in finding dates, but in finding friends. Our users started behaving differently. I started noticing and our team started noticing young women and men alike saying, not here for dating, husband just got a job somewhere, or looking for this new life thing, right? But it had nothing to do with dating. Whitney and her team were smart enough to follow where their users went. Our users were basically hijacking our product to use it in a different way. We were hearing success stories. We would meet people and they'd say, I just found my roommate on Bumble. You found your roommate on Bumble? And so we built Bumble BFF, and that was platonic friendships. But dating and friendship aren't the only areas Bumble users have become interested in, including one that's particularly close to home for me. In our discussion, this is particularly entertaining because I recall seeing a headline that goes, Bumble CEO takes aim at LinkedIn. Um, <laughs> well, this is awkward yes, in the exactly. LinkedIn office. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. And, uh, and so what was the decision to expand beyond and what was the theory of it? Okay. Well, for the record, never wanted to take aim. Don't think we could. Love LinkedIn. Big fan. Just for the record, I feel exactly the same about Bumble, though my dating days are long behind me. Interestingly enough, lo and behold, inside BFF, they start networking with each other. They don't want roommates. They don't want friends. They don't want to go to yoga. They want to build a business. They want to meet someone that works in HR recruiting or whatever it was. We went, aha, okay, platonic friendships is not necessarily the appropriate place for business. Let's expand beyond this. And so it was really just letting the users operate as they wanted and going with them. Note how Bumble's users latched onto that original small tweak and began using it in ways Whitney and her team hadn't imagined. This is a gift that every smart leader knows they should make the most of. Whitney has become a master of understanding what her users want and then making the small changes to Bumble that help them achieve their goals. And as Bumble expands internationally, she is already on the lookout for the tweaks that will allow Bumble to scale in different cultures. Bumble is not some crazy new idea that shows up and changes everything. It's just giving people something that they've already been within them. And so going into India, a place where women now are more empowered than they've ever been, their voices are finally being heard. They've always had their voice. Priyanka says that the best. Priyanka Chopra is our partner in going to India. 
But now it's a moment where India is really listening to women. And it's been fascinating to see women gravitate to this product. We've only been live there for a couple short months. And I think in the first few weeks, we had a million first moves. A woman making a first move in India is so culturally unheard of that this is really an interesting moment, not just for us, but to see how this can really shape out. It'll be interesting to see how it works. Well, um, the degree to which you can become a force by using these kind of communities of communication, of belonging, of participation, of coordination, the dance, mm. as you were, if you can improve gender relations in multiple cultures, that will be simply awesome. It will be. Let's hope we can have some small role in that. I think it's absolutely the case that small, simple things can change the entire dynamic of how interaction works, how we see ourselves and our place in society, and the importance of mutual appreciation. We just need to open our eyes to find these tweaks and open our minds to where they might take us. I'm Reid Hoffman. Thank you for listening. And now, a final word from our brand partner, Capital One Business. Throughout the day, text messages and emails kept pouring in. Whatever you need, just let us know. We're back one more time with Aparna Saran of Capital One Business. She was telling us about a Sunday morning email she fired off in a moment of panic. Minutes later, her inbox was overflowing. And the support she found wasn't just emotional, it was practical. We talked about detailed contingency plans and we created our go-to-market strategy. Before we are in full rollout mode, we had stage gates so that we could test and quickly learn and iterate. And within a matter of like six months, as we were rolling things out channel by channel, those stage gates would allow us to pivot if we saw something that we didn't like. That day, Aparna learned a lesson that stayed with her. Having multiple plan Bs doesn't just expand your options. It gives you new opportunities. The best way to pivot is actually open doors for thoughtful conversations because humility in knowing that you actually don't know everything as well as the empathy in knowing that disruption is always drastic and abrupt helps you go through that pivot with other people in a very different way. Capital One Business is proud to support entrepreneurs and leaders working to scale their impact from Fortune 500s to first-time business owners. For more resources to help drive your business forward, visit CapitalOne.com slash Business Hub. That's CapitalOne.com slash Business Hub. Masters of Scale is a Wait What original. The show is recorded on-site in California and produced at the studio inside SY Partners in New York. Our executive producers are June Cohen and Darren Triff. Our producers are Chris McLeod, Adam Skuse, Jenny Cataldo, Jordan McLeod, and Ben Manila. Our supervising producer is Jay Punjabi. Original music by Allison Layton Brown. Sound design, mixing, and mastering by Brian Pugh. Special thanks to Chris Ye, Elisa Schreiber, David Sanford, Saida Sepieva, Christina Gonzalez, and Sarah Sandman. Visit mastersofscale.com to find the transcript for this episode. And be sure to subscribe to our email newsletter.